Hey guys, let me tell you about the sponsor for today's episode. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast opportunities such as the one I'm doing right now. They have host read ads, interview segments, and more. The great thing about Podcorn is there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and pick opportunities right on the platform. You set your own rates and you collaborate with brands directly. The best thing is that you never give up any rights to your podcast and Podcorn will support you every step of the way to ensure that you are protected and compensated for the work you do. Click the link on my show notes page to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 22, The Battle of the Coral Sea. Okay, so welcome back. Let me just uh, remind you to check out the website. The address is www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can see some maps there that will help you out with today's episode. And there's also a list of sources that I've used to create Season 4. Now, speaking of the sources, if you click on one of them, it'll take you over to Amazon. And if whatever you buy, even if it's not that actual book, we'll get a few pennies thrown our way. It's a quick and easy way for you to support what we're doing, and it costs you nothing. Another way is for you to sign up for our Patreon. Just go over to patreon.com forward slash American History. For only $10 a month, you'll get access to not one, but two bonus shows. Right now, those shows are 1983, The Year the World Almost Ended, and Quagmire, the story of American involvement in the Middle East. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating, or do so wherever you get your podcasts from. That really helps out with things like new listeners when they're trying to find the show. And if you've got time, drop us a two-sentence five-star review. It is much appreciated. All right, so last time we spoke, we discussed how the Japanese military machine, by 1942, appeared unstoppable. They had steamrolled their way through the South Pacific and had their eye on Australia. War fever swept Japan, and it looked, or it started to look, like no one would stop them. Then we discussed the Doolittle Raid an event that shook the Japanese hierarchy, especially the Imperial Navy, to its core. That event, while insignificant in the damage that it did, was a major factor in the thinking of Japanese leaders and led them to decide to try and take out Midway and the U.S. Navy rather than continuing to push south and perhaps try and acquire Australia. With all of that said, our song of the week this week is Cherry Blossoms of the Same Name, a song whose title implies perhaps that the soldiers and sailors of Japan were happy to fall and die for their country and their loved ones. In any case, I'll see you in a few minutes.
Okay, now one of the things that I failed to mention in the last episode was Nimitz's feeling or feelings about the Doolittle raid. He was worried that by devoting half of his carrier force to that endeavor, he only had two other flat tops to cover the rest of the ocean. By mid-April, his worries were justified. The Japanese were planning another major offensive in the South Pacific. He learned this thanks to the American codebreakers working in Hawaii. And working out of what was referred to as Station Hypo in the Hawaiian Islands, codebreakers working under Lieutenant Commander James Rochefort were closing in on breaking the Japanese Imperial Navy's code, known as JN-25 Bravo. They didn't yet have the entire code broken, but they knew some of it. For example, they knew Invasion Force, or the term for Invasion Force, and they knew the code name for Port Moresby, represented by the letters RZP. Thus, they believed the next target uh, for the invasion was Port Moresby. Now, while some believed Rochefort was simply guessing, they were only partly correct. Yes, he was guessing, but it was an informed guess. Nimitz, however, was convinced. He contacted Admiral King, who agreed with him that the best they could do was to send Lexington and her escorts to join up with Yorktown. Now, luckily, Yorktown and her escort ships were already in the Coral Sea. Nimitz immediately ordered Lexington to head south and join up with the Yorktown, which was under the command of Rear Admiral Frank Fletcher. To help aid the task force, Nimitz had the battleships, which had been patrolling the eastern Pacific, head back to the west coast, thus freeing up the destroyers and refueling tankers to support the fleet being sent south. MacArthur, now in Australia, sent a small force of Australian and American cruisers and destroyers to join the fight. As historian Ronald Spector points out in Eagle Against the Sun, the American War with Japan, it's unclear what Nimitz expected to find. Some historians believe this was a desperate attempt to stop the Japanese advance into the south. Others were the opinion that Nimitz was trying to force a showdown with the Japanese carrier fleet. Nimitz himself said, quote, Our superior personnel and resourcefulness and initiative and the undoubted superiority of much of our equipment meant the Americans would have the edge in any fight. Now, as we mentioned a few episodes back, there was going to be problems with the breakdown of responsibilities when an operation overlapped, and this was one of those operations. Port Moresby, which the operation was supposed to help defend, lay firmly in General Douglas MacArthur's zone. At the same time, Admiral Fletcher's ships belonged to the Pacific Fleet, and thus were ultimately under the command of Admiral Nimitz. All land-based aircraft out of Australia and New Guinea, you guessed it, were under MacArthur. So here's the problem. MacArthur had to support naval operations, over which he had no control, while Nimitz needed to depend on land-based planes over which he had no control. So just a week or so after it had been established, the new division of authority was causing trouble. Another issue was that, while the Air Corps airplanes that were ostensibly commanded by MacArthur looked good on paper, the reality was far different. Most of the air crews were worn out, and the replacements arriving from Australia were often green. As for the equipment, out of 500 total aircraft, only 200 were operational. The planes of the Royal Australian Air Force were either worn out or obsolete. In the end, these planes were concentrated for raids against Rabul and in searches of the Solomon Sea, with large areas of the central and eastern portion of the Coral Sea not even searched at all. I've included a map on the website for you to see the area that we're discussing today. Now, on May 1st, the Lexington joined up with Fletcher and his ships. Both task forces began refueling, 
a process which was slow and took the next two days. On the evening of May 2nd, Admiral Fletcher, who had received reports of Japanese ships in the region, thanks to the aforementioned Air Corps, took the Yorktown and ships, which had been fin- or had finally finished refueling, into the center of the Coral Sea with the goal of finding the enemy. The Lexington Group was ordered to complete their refueling and join up the next day. Then on May 3rd, Fletcher received word that the Japanese were landing troops on Tulagi. He rushed the Yorktown and her escorts north, then launched three waves of airstrikes against the Japanese. For their part, there were no Japanese airplanes in the air as their own carriers were busy taking aircraft to rebel and refueling. Thus, the Americans were able to attack the minesweepers, transports, and destroyers off to Logie at will. The pilots returned to their ships jubilant and claimed that cruisers, destroyers, and transports were sunk. The truth was far different. Instead, the Japanese lost one destroyer, two patrol boats, and one transport, with the second one badly damaged. Not bad, but when one considers they had commanded the skies and rained bombs and torpedoes on their enemy, one might be forgiven for thinking this wasn't all that impressive. However, the Americans did cause the Japanese Navy to retreat to the safety of Rabaul, and that's actually the way you're supposed to pronounce it. It's Rabaul, not I was saying Rabul. Sorry about that. Now, what the Americans did not know is where the Japanese carriers were. Admiral Takio Takagi and his two carriers, the Shokaku and the Zaikaku, were actu- had actually sailed around the eastern end of the Solomon Islands and were coming up behind Fletcher's Task Force 17. The funny thing is that neither force was aware that the enemy was close by. Indeed, at one point, they were within 70 miles of each other. On the morning of May 7th, both the Americans and the Japanese launched search planes looking for the enemy. Neither side found the other's main force. But a search plane from Yorktown did find some elements of the group that was set to take or to invade Port Moresby. However, instead of reporting it as two cruisers, the radio operator used the wrong code key and actually reported it as two carriers. Needless to say, that led Admiral Fletcher to launch a full-on airstrike on both of his carriers, and soon the Americans had 93 planes in the air headed towards what they thought were the Japanese carriers. Fletcher eventually learned of the mistake, but by that time it was too late to recall the airstrike. Amazingly, another report came in. This one was from the Army. One of their search planes spotted a Japanese carrier about 20 miles from the originally reported coordinates. So Fletcher broke radio silence and gave the airstrike new coordinates. While it wasn't a full-size carrier, it was the escort Shoho, uh, which was accompanied by the invasion force. Attacked by 90 aircraft, the Shoho was overwhelmed. Reports from pilots from both the Lexington and the Yorktown claimed massive hits. The former reported that they had landed five bombs and nine torpedoes, while the latter said they had 14 bomb hits and 10 from torpedoes. Even if the numbers were inflated, which they probably were, the damage was catastrophic. The ship was literally blown to bits. Out of 736 crew members, only 204 survived. It was the first Japanese carrier that was lost during the war. And actually, it was the first important combatant of any kind to go down for the Japanese. Lieutenant Commander Robert Dixon, leading the Lexington Scout Bombers, radioed what would become a famous line, Scratch one flat top. The Americans weren't the only ones who had attacked a false sighting. At 0722, 
a Japanese scout reported a carrier and a cruiser within range. Thus, Admiral Hara launched a full air attack from both of his carriers towards those coordinates. However, what they actually found once they arrived was a fleet oiler and her escort destroyer. Both were overwhelmed and the destroyer was sunk while the oiler was severely damaged. The only reason she didn't go down immediately was the fact that her fuel tanks were half empty. Now this was just the preliminary salvo of the battle. On May 8th, scout planes from each of the fleets finally sighted the enemy. This time it was for real, and the battle was on. Both the Americans and their Japanese counterparts launched full air assaults against each other. As a matter of fact, the planes from each of the raids passed each other en route to their targets. Arriving first, the Americans dealt with ferocious Japanese opposition in the form of their Zeros, which were flying combat air patrol over the fleet. One pilot reported the scene was pure chaos, people yelling over the radio, mixed up, and you never knew who was on top of whom. And that's a quote. Thanks to all of this, the American torpedoes scored no hits on the enemy. However, the dive bombers, coming almost straight down from about 14,000 feet, they put three 1,000-pound bombs onto the Shokaku, completely wrecking her flight deck, although she somehow managed to remain afloat. The Zuikaku, thanks to cloud cover, was able to escape. Now, Task Force 17 had its own problems as well. The Japanese aviators, many of whom were petty officers and warrant officers, were well-trained and came in from both sides simultaneously. This made it difficult, to say the least, for the carriers to avoid the torpedoes. The big carriers attempted to maneuver, but the Lexington, which had been built out of a heavy battle cruiser hull, was slow to turn and difficult to move. As her commanding officer, Captain Frederick Sherman, noted later, she, quote, took, on, took 30 to 40 seconds just to put the rudder hard over, end quote. And even then, the ship took her time to turn. In just the first few minutes, she was struck by two bombs and two torpedoes. Fires raged throughout the ship, and she was listing seven degrees. Damage control teams were able to get the fires under control, and counter-flooding measures got her back over to an even keel. This allowed her to recover her airplanes as they were coming back from their own attacks along the Japanese carriers. Then, at 1247, a massive internal explosion ruptured uh, from a ruptured fuel tank down below, ripped a giant hole in the flight deck, and sent the aircraft elevator platforms, which weighed several tons, spinning up into the air before it came down crashing onto the flight deck, crushing an airplane. An hour later, there was another internal explosion. It was now obvious the ship was doomed. Sherman ordered her crew to abandon ship, and once everyone was clear, the USS Phelps, a destroyer, sent her to the bottom of the ocean with five torpedo hits. Yorktown was also damaged, but not fatally. She frantically maneuvered and dodged at least eight torpedoes. However, near misses shook her and damaged the hull below the waterline. One bomb penetrated the flight deck, exploding down below in her engine spaces and killed 66 sailors. The lights went out and three of her boilers had to be secured. She was afloat, but wounded, trailing a long black oil slick from her now leaking fuel tanks. Now Admiral Fletcher, for a brief moment, considered a second strike on the enemy, but decided it was best to call it a day. He wasn't the only one. Takagi and Hara both pulled back from the encounter as well. Even more importantly, Admiral Inoue, commander of the overall operation and station on Rabaul, 
ordered the entire invasion force to retire to the north. The Japanese failed to obtain their objective, Port Moresby, and in fact, they never took it. No one realized it at the time, but the Japanese Empire had just reached the limits of its conquests. From this point forward, just five months after the war began, Japan's imperial conquests would be slowly undone. Now, there are several interesting outcomes. First, I'd like to mention, and you might know this, or perhaps you caught on as the narrative was unfolding, but this was the first time in naval history that two fleets engaged with each other in battle without actually seeing one another. The ships themselves never saw their enemy. This was the first naval battle that was conducted um, with the enemy, quote, over the horizon, end quote. Furthermore, the Japanese, based on the reports of their pilots, believed they had sunk both the Lexington and the Yorktown. This victory was trumpeted by the Imperial Navy, but privately Admiral Yamamoto was disappointed. He believed Hara should have followed up and verified that both carriers were sunk. Actually, Yamato, or Yamamoto sorry, was probably more furious than disappointed, as he went so far as to radio Admiral Inoue and deliver a clear chastening to his subordinate. He asked what was, quote, the reason for issuing such an order to retire when further advance and attack were needed, end quote. Of course, the Americans also inflated their achievements. Headlines in the New York Times insisted the Americans had sunk no fewer than 17 Japanese warships, including two aircraft carriers, one heavy cruiser, and six destroyers. And the papers were silent as to the American losses, reporting that they were relatively light. This, of course, was far from the truth. In fact, the American losses were heavier than those of the Japanese, and losing the Lexington meant the nation had just lost 25% of its available strike capability in the Pacific. As historian Chris Simons notes in his book on naval warfare during World War II, the Japanese decided to send Shokaku into the yards for a full refit, while Nimitz decided the Yorktown should instead be patched up and sent back into the fight. This was because, thanks to Rochefort, he now had word that the Japanese were preparing to send four of their large carriers, along with two fast battleships and several other escorts, to hit something the code called AF. This, they believed, was Midway. Now here's the dilemma Nimitz faced. Lexington was gone. Yorktown was badly damaged and limping back to Pearl. His only other flat tops, Enterprise and Hornet, were on the way back from the Doolittle raid. They were not expected back in Pearl Harbor until May 25th. Even if they were to quickly turn around and head out to defend Midway, they were likely facing a force twice their size. The smart thing to do would be to simply keep them out of harm's way, especially as the only other carrier, the Saratoga, was still undergoing a refit in the shipyards on the west coast. Nimitz, however, saw opportunity where others saw danger. He felt that if the Yorktown could quickly be repaired, at least her hull, then he could replenish her air wing with the planes from Saratoga's air wing. That would mean he had three carriers, and if you counted the airfield at Midway, he would actually have four. Midway may not be able to move like a ship, but it also couldn't be sunk. However, this story must wait. Next time, we will get into the Battle of Midway. As always, I'm your host, Sean, and you've been listening to episode or season four of the American History Podcast. And I'll see you all soon.
Shut it off, Robert. Oh, please, I like it. Wait a minute. 